Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 22. While you're turning there, I'll just pray. Good Father in heaven, your name be hallowed this morning. Lord, we pray, dear Father, that your word would be treasured, that your encouragements would be received and your warnings would be heeded. Give grace to me as I proclaim these truths to your people. Holy Spirit, we ask for your great help Open our eyes to see your truths. Remind us of truths we've long known. May we take them to heart. Lord, let us not be like the people of Israel who do not take anything to heart. So help us search our hearts and our thoughts and our ways. Help us to know ourselves before you. To avoid the great dangers that your word has for us this morning. Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Luke 22, and uh, that's because we've completed Luke 1 through 21. And uh, um, you know where we've come, right? We've been dealing with the rejection of Jesus, uh, especially the rejection of Jesus from the religious leaders, you know, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You know, they're, they're done with Jesus, and at this point, Jesus is done with them. We spent two weeks in Luke chapter 21 on the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus, Jesus telling them, Jerusalem and the temple and all of its, all of its arrogance and greed and pride, it's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to be destroyed. Um, because you have rejected the Messiah that God has sent to you who we know is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, but it's not just, it's not just the um, religious leaders who reject Jesus. And it's really important that we kind of keep that in mind. I mean, you have heard me apply forever at this point the truths of the Sanhedrin and the modern parallels between our kind of American Christian church leadership dynamic and culture. Um, you've heard me... Uh, sometimes name names at points. And, uh, and as horrific as all of that is, it's important to remember that um, sometimes the rejection of Jesus, sometimes the rejection of Jesus is far more close to home to Jesus than kind of out there with the big and the grand. And in Luke 22, there's a lot of things happening. We are moving into the suffering and death of Christ. Jesus has been telling us, I'm going to suffer I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to be raised. Going all the way back to Luke chapter 9, we're now in it. It's Thursday of Passion Week, and the last, these couple chapters right here that we're walking into are the suffering and death of our dear Lord. There's a lot of things happening in Luke chapter 22, but what we're going to focus on just for um, what we have uh, time for this morning is Jesus and Judas. And so... Uh, the reason, when you're, when you're studying a narrative, right, and Luke has constructed Luke 22 with lots of things happening, but when you're looking at a story, one of the ways to preach a story is to kind of pick one of the threads that's kind of woven through. So we're not going to hit everything in Luke 22 this morning. We're going to come back to it. 
uh, for a couple different things here over the next couple weeks. But what we're going to focus on in Luke 22 is the storyline with Judas. And Judas, of course, maybe as familiar as anything to us as the one who betrayed Jesus. The most maybe despicable act in human history, the, dis- the, the betrayal unto the death of our dear Lord. I titled the message, The Betrayal of the Son of God. And, and I just want to, let's read through some different passages here, and then we'll dive into them a little bit. But beginning in Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Pas- Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Of course, this happens under cover of darkness, you know. You want to avoid a crowd like where Jesus is at right now at the time of the Passover where it's full of people. Uh, under cover of darkness is what is actually going to take place. Now, jump over to verse 21. So they sit down, right? They have the Passover meal. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And in that moment of the Lord's Supper, verse 21, but behold, Jesus says, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how the conversation went down like Matthew does, where you know Judas says, is it I, Lord? And Jesus says, you have said so yourself. At some point here, Judas leaves uh, the story of what's taking place here because he's going to come back later. Jump down to verse 47. While he was still speaking, this is after Jesus told the disciples to pray in the garden and Jesus is sweating blood. And then verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve. That's the second time it has said that. One of the twelve. Why might that be? Was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas... Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers in the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jump down to verse 66. When day came, see this is all taking place in the very, very early dark morning hours. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. 
But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. How many times does the word betray used in relationship to Jesus? And then at the end, Jesus is the Son of God. So this is the betrayal of the Son of God. I want to just mention this quickly, that this is at the time of Passover. Passover was the remembrance of when God's judgment passed over the firstborn in Israel, going all the way back to when Israel was still enslaved in Egypt, and the blood was put over the door, right? It was put over the door, and then God's judgment passed over the doors who the Jews had put blood over so that their firstborn was not destroyed when the destroyer went out and killed all the firstborn in Egypt. And the whole point of what we're entering into here is at Passover that this isn't just any other Passover meal. This is Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ, the one whose blood is the blood that covers us from the destroyer. Jesus Christ's blood, when we trust in Him, is the blood that saves and delivers us and rescues us from the very wrath of God. And Christ is putting Himself on display as the very blood that saves. And if you understand that, then you think about what Judas is doing and what the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are doing to Jesus to put to death this Lord of glory who would be their very Passover lamb. And rather than them submit to Jesus Christ, they betray Him and reject Him. And I won't say much about it, but remember the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the leaders of Israel, right? the ones who should have been saying This is the Lamb of God, like John the Baptist who takes away the sins of the world, are putting him to death. And never, 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 never put someone's office, whether pastor or, you know, bishop or elder, never exalt it so highly that you would follow a man who... Uh, speaks things that are in error or not true from the Word of God or speaks against the law of God. Don't be such a respecter of those in high religious positions or missionary or, or any other thing that would lead you away from Christ and His blood being the only way of salvation. How often it's actually been that it's actually been those who were you know, ordained men who have led the church astray. Somebody's leadership position doesn't give them a special access to blood. Doesn't give them a special access to the Passover lamb. Well, then there's this really haunting statement in verse 3, and I am not going to be able to get into it thoroughly, but then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. 
So what's going on with Judas? John actually tells us that, um, John's gospel actually tells us that Judas was the one in charge of the money bag for the disciples as they wandered around and, you know, had needs and had, you know, needed to buy food or trade or whatever um, uh, for the sake of their ministry. Uh, And also that, you know, he helped himself to the offering bag on occasion. By the way, never take money from the offering bag. The kinds of things that you would think should never have to be said by a pastor, but Judas, close to Jesus, is helping himself to the money bag. These kinds of things happen in churches. Never do that. That's not going to go well for you. And what did it mean for Judas? It meant for Judas that he was a lover of money, that he was full of greed in his heart. But it's fascinating because this isn't like a thing that comes up in all that we read in the Gospels, in the interactions of the disciples. You don't find them going like, Judas, you know, some things just don't seem right in your life. You don't see that happen. You just don't see that happen. Why? Because outwardly, outwardly, Judas is going along with the flow of all the other disciples. Judas is, you know, outwardly, they, they don't, I mean, even, even in the moment where um, Jesus is talking, in, the, in this moment at the institution of the Lord's Supper, if you read Matthew's account, Right? The disciples are like, well, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Who's going to betray me? Well, you would think, right? You would think that uh, all the disciples have discerned Judas' heart and all these things would have borne some kind of fruit that they were all aware of and that they all would have seen that this was going to be, it was obviously going to be Judas, except no one knew except Jesus. No one knew except Jesus of course, something about Judas's own heart, given to the love of money, made him the perfect person for Satan to work through his own passions and enter into him and rule his life, all the way unto the betrayal of Christ our Lord. Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. There's something, there's something about that when you read it. It's, we just think, well, they're just identifying that he's just one of the disciples, but it's more than, them, more than Luke identifying that he's just one of the disciples. He's trying to get us to gasp a little bit. He's one, he's one of the twelve. He's one of the twelve. I wrote several things down about how close Judas was to Jesus. I mean, Judas had Jesus' presence for full three years of ministry. He had the fullness of Christ, God the Son. Down in verse 14, when Jesus, in 15, when Jesus says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and they're reclining at table. You know? This is this meal of intimacy. Jesus says, and he said to them, I, Jesus says this to his disciples, to the twelve, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus giving them, Judas, 
and the twelve the fullness of his presence and earnestly desiring to give them the fullness of his presence. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Judas had Jesus' presence. Judas also had Jesus' promises. If you jump over to verse 35, promises, or sorry, verse uh, 28, these kinds of promises that Jesus had given to the twelve. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These kinds of promises that Jesus had given to the disciples, I mean, countless promises. Think back to Luke chapter 12, the kinds of kindness that Jesus gave to them. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Judas had heard all of the blessings of Jesus' promises to them. Judas had Jesus' power. Look at verse 35 now, and he said to them, when I sent you, now now in this moment in history, okay, Judas is probably not hearing Jesus say this, but Judas was present when this event happened where the disciples were sent out with power to preach the gospel and call men to repent and believe the good news. But verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you out, Judas was there. And Luke tells us that Jesus sent them out with power and authority. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And of course, that's recalling, that's recalling him sending out the twelve in chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And so what do they do? They go out and they preach. And Judas was among those twelve going out, having a special endowment of power from Jesus Christ Himself to do miraculous works to point to Jesus and the kingdom of God in breaking in history. He had experienced power. The power of Jesus. Judas also had Jesus preaching. I mean, how many times do we, have we read through Luke's Gospel up to this point? And, you know, um, he did not just have Jesus preaching. He had, he had heard Jesus preaching to the Pharisees. He heard Jesus preaching to the scribes. He heard Jesus preaching to the crowds. All throughout, all of Israel, and sometimes beyond. And then he also had heard all of those phrases where it says, and Jesus turned to His disciples. Or, and Jesus spoke to His disciples. You know, sermon after sermon after sermon that wasn't for the big crowd, but was just for them. And Judas heard every single one of them.
and Judas goes before this Passover meal to talk to the chief priests and to talk to the leaders and elders to find, see if they can come up with some way that, that he might be able to betray him to them. And of course, someone who loves money, what is he thinking? He's thinking, I can get paid. I can get paid. And of course, with betrayal, the reason that betrayal is betrayal is because it comes from someone close. It comes from someone close. It comes from someone with whom you've had table fellowship with. It comes from someone whom you've had some level of intimacy and life together with. It comes from someone who is a a friend or a family member or a spouse or... That's what makes betrayal betrayal is the pain of the disloyalty and the pain of the one you trust becoming someone who you can no longer trust. And in Judas's case, he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the enemy to be put to death. Before I draw some lines of application, I just want to ask this question. What would have happened if Judas had repented? What would have happened if Judas would have repented of his love of money? What would have happened if Judas had, with godly sorrow, cast himself at the mercy of the feet of Christ, even of this most despicable act? What would have happened Well, of course, that wasn't obviously what was going to happen in God's providence, but what we know of the gospel and the good news is that God would have forgiven him, and Jesus would have received him, and Jesus would have accepted him and welcomed him, and Jesus Christ's blood would have been his Passover. We, if, you want, if you want to learn some illustrations about spiritual truth, just get some kind of animals around your house. We have guineas, and, and uh, we're on like round two of the guineas. You know, I told all kinds of stories about our guineas in round one, and then they all died. You know? And then, so now we're in round two, and so we have guineas and chickens, because the chickens are supposed to keep the guineas a little bit closer. And uh, so far, so good, but they're all, they're all just petrified all the time. For the longest time, they wouldn't even leave the chicken coop. I mean, for like days on end. Finally, they're starting to get a little bit braver. But um, when we first started letting them out of the, of the coop, because, you know, when they're young, you've got to kind of keep them in there, and they've got to learn this is where their food is and all these kinds of things, so that at night they'll return. Well, why do you want them to return at night? Well, you want them to return at night so they have refuge and they have shelter, right, because we have coyotes and foxes, and actually pulling out of our driveway this morning was maybe a mink. I'm not quite sure what a mink, but there was an animal that I hadn't, hadn't seen up close and personal right at the end of our driveway, and I'm like, okay, protection from a mink. You want them to go into the guinea coop at night. And so the first day or so uh, that we let them out, there were like three of them 
just absolutely would not go back in there. It's like you try to guide them in. You know, we walk around with the kids, like, walk around with, like, sticks like this, you know, kind of trying to guide them. And they, they absolutely just would not go in. They, like, go into panic mode. They just, like, run around in circles. They run around in circles around the guinea coop. And um, finally, you just give up, and they wander off into the woods, never to be seen again. Caleb says, this was Caleb, Caleb said, three of our, yeah, those three of our guineas that were just dumb beyond belief. <laughs> just dumb beyond belief. And, and I, just, I just laughed so hard, and then later I just thought, that's exactly what our sin makes us. It makes us dumb beyond belief. Here are the guineas, like they're, they're this close to the door of safety. They're this close to the door that is the refuge from the night and all of the, the, what happens at night for animals that are normally prey. They're, they're this close to just walking through the door and there being shelter there from all that would harm them. And they won't walk through the door I just think there's a lot of illustrations that could come out of that, but Judas, right at the door, having been given so much in the kindness and grace of Jesus Christ to walk with him, having been given so much right at the door. And Judas, sin making him dumb beyond belief. Sin making him dumb beyond belief. Won't walk that road. 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver wandering off into the darkness. things to take away and think about. One is how easy it is to be in Jesus' church and sitting in Jesus' church and around Jesus' presence and Jesus' power and Jesus' people and be completely self-deceived about your own heart as Judas was. It's a really sobering truth, and in some ways I tremble to even preach it to you because of the fear of some of you who have a really tender conscience who will take this to places that I don't want you to go. But the fact of the matter is, no one identified Judas as the one who would betray Jesus. And it is entirely possible to have an outward conformity, having been so close to the things of Christ, and in your heart maintain a malice against him ultimately, that rejects him. And the door is right here for you to walk into the life of the Savior of the world and to find yourself in refuge under his blood, the Passover lamb. And I just don't want it to be any of you. I don't want it to be any of you. Secondly, I want you to know that 
if you have experienced betrayal of some kind. If you have experienced betrayal of some kind, and many of you have, or if you have not, you will at some point. I just want you to know that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has experienced a worse kind of betrayal, and he knows it very, very well. And he will walk with you personally and intimately and care for you and strengthen you and uphold you, and ultimately he will vindicate you in the midst of it and beyond it. You have one to whom you can come, who you can trust entirely with your betrayal. Let us pray for a genuine kind of humility where our hearts would be known. Let us pray for a genuine kind of humility where our hearts would be known and not hidden under the veil of a Judas-like outward conformity. You know, it's something, something strange in the Christianity of our today where we just kind of have a veil over everything. And we are masterful. You know, it's like when you think about your kids, your kids wear their heart on their sleeve. Adults are sneaky. Adults have learned to not do that. Adults have learned that to make sure that no one ever knows anything going on in their heart and life. And I'll, let me use an illustration for you in regards to the nature of what pastoral care is and pastoral ministry is. So when you're sick and you go to the doctor, and you go to the doctor, and what happens at the doctor's office? Well, what does a good doctor do? A good doctor starts asking questions. Right? A good doctor wants to hear the nature of what's going on with your body, what, what symptoms are going on, what, you know, and they're starting to ask all kinds, all kinds of questions. And what do you do at the doctor's office? You answer all the questions. As embarrassing as the questions are, and the answers are, you know, about whatever thing you got to go to the doctor about, right? And those things are not all glorious. And you just answer all the questions. Because you think that if the doctor has all the information, that's the best chance of actually getting good care for the body. But when it comes to your heart and it comes to the care of your soul, you don't think the same way. I don't think the same way. The work of pastoral care is, let me ask you some questions. Let's talk a little bit. Or, hey, something's going on in my life. Okay, let me ask you some questions. Let's talk. Let's dig into that. Let's find out what's actually going on in here. Lay the ugly out. And if you don't know how to lay the ugly out, maybe I'll ask some questions. And it will feel like meddling. Right? It will feel like meddling. 
but it's your soul. And if your soul has sickness in it, don't you want, don't you want help finding healing for the place that is a sin-sick soul? So what I'm trying to tell you is it's not worth going for outward conformity and trying to be the one who hides and covers your heart. You have to get your heart out to those who can actually help you. And beyond you being sick and merely just say, coming to me or your small group leader or one of your elders or one of your brothers in the church, wherever it goes, be humble and open to the reality of someone kind of probing a little bit. Proactively. I mean, I was having a delightful conversation with a brother in our church yesterday that was just so encouraging because I was kind of, you know, pastoring. I was meddling. I was kind of trying to pry into so I could understand the nature of what was going on so I could be of help. And they were so meek about it and so patient. don't want your heart to be hidden like Judas' heart in the life of God's church and before God's shepherds of your soul. And so let us pursue the kind of humility that doesn't hide and cover our heart. The goal isn't just to puke our hearts all over everybody all the time as if that's just a therapeutic exercise. The goal is to actually get help for our hearts, that our hearts might love Christ, that our hearts might submit to Christ, that our hearts might adore Christ rather than in, this last, in the last day, be found to be hypocrites and deceivers, ultimately, who are no better, much better than the uh, betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ by Judas. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Father, may the blood of Christ be what brings us out of the fear of man. Deliver us from covering and hiding our hearts and what's really going on in our lives. Your word says, he who confesses and forsakes his sin finds mercy. And may we be confident in the goodness of the brotherhood and the sisterhood here in this church. May we be confident in the goodness of the pastoral work and the elders' work and the small group leaders' work, that we will find mercy as our hearts are born, sometimes even very, in very raw ways, that we might know and pursue repentance, that we may live lives of humble repentance, that we may adore Christ and forsake the way of Judas, of outward conformity around so many things. Father, we pray for those, if there's anyone here who has yet to know the kindness of Jesus Christ and his mercies and the blessings and the hope of eternal life that Christ brings to all who repent and believe the good news. Father, please call them to yourself that they might know him, that they may know him as the one who is the Passover lamb whose blood pays for the penalty of all their sins and that they can be forgiven of everything they've ever done or will do. Father, may it be that 
no one here is found to be a son of destruction like Judas in the last day. May we be found knowing you, the one who's paid it all for us. In Jesus' name, amen.